Welcome to the Rethinking Politics podcast. I'm Dan. I'm here with Brad. We're here for episode two. We're going to be discussing, as promised, the war on drugs. Last time, we talked about a variety of police policies and systematic changes that could be put in place, many of which people have never heard of, in part because all of those policies were driven by state politics. And most people just don't pay attention to state politics. They don't realize that there's so many things that you can change at the local and state levels that would make a huge difference, but they go unnoticed because so much tension is on the big issues and the issues that win national elections and therefore get lots more money and lots more time. But here we are, prepared to discuss one of those issues. And as we've been talking about it and thinking about how to bring you into this conversation, uh, Brad and I have been looking at how like in a lot of ways, the battle lines are already drawn for this issue and people have strong feelings and they have very deep opinions. And that can make it quite difficult to have a productive conversation. You know, many people have conversations about, about this issue, but not many of them could be considered productive. Right. And lots of people have feelings because it, it personally affects them. They know somebody, someone who is, uh, either addicted or they themselves have been addicted at some point in their life, whether it be to uh, illegal drugs or something else, it's a very difficult experience that most people, it touches really everybody's life. So with that, we're going to talk first about the current state of drugs in the U.S. And there are a lot of good reasons to paint this picture first. We're going to look at some of the numbers around the current state of affairs, because in order to understand the solutions and to order to un in order to understand how effective what we be, what we are doing has been, you need to see the results. You need to see what we've achieved. We need to see what the consequences of our loss of it. To begin with, we're going to draw on some general health stats from drugabuse.gov. They collect a lot of information on this uh, to try and do exactly what we're attempting to do to try and, and see what the current state of it is and what's working and what isn't and and what we can do about it. So first off, this is from ages 12 plus in 2017 is where this information comes from. 19% of people over the age of 12, 12 and up, have had an illicit drug in the past year. And by illicit, we mean illegal or abused beyond their prescription. It could be a prescription drug that they're just abusing in some way. 11.2% have had an illicit drug in the last month, which is relevant because obviously in the last month that you're much more likely to be getting at people who are actually still struggling with it if, you, if you're asking last month instead of last year. And finally, 48.8% of all of the people 12 and up have had an illicit drug at some point in their life. So just under half, that's a lot. It is a lot. And this is, uh, drug laws are in the news a lot lately for being, for overdoses. Overdoses are on the rise. In 2018, there were 67,367 overdoses. Oh, yeah, stop right there for one second. The numbers before are interesting. You know, that means a lot of people are using drugs, but it doesn't quite paint a picture on what effect those drugs are having. But the overdose number, that number is interesting because that's 67,367 people who died in 2018 as a result of drug consumption, right? Right. Direct. They, overdosed they overdosed directly. Yes, this was not, this was not an effect. This was not something related. No, this was directly because of the drug they died. And that's, that's crazy to me because that number is very high. Like, 
let's compare that to to motor motor vehicle fatalities. How do you think that number compares, Dan? I'm gonna put you in the, on the spot. I know that motor fatalities are like one of the number one things that people. Yeah, they're one of the, they're yeah. People so, are are very so, upset about the number of people who die. Yeah, if I had to guess, I'd say motor fatalities are way higher than that. Maybe like probably many times higher, two or three times higher. So 2018 was the year that you presented your data. Yes. In 2018, and this is actually funny that I I pulled this up not not knowing beforehand, but anyways, I was going to talk about a separate thing. In 2018, 36,560 people died in traffic accidents. 36,000 So almost less in total. So it's almost half that number. It's a little bit more than half Jeez. died in traffic accidents. So you have way more people dying just from overdoses than dying in traffic accidents. And that's all traffic accidents. That's that's not just DUIs. That's not right. no. It's everything. That's every traffic accident fatality is thirty six thousand in twenty eighteen. Yes, yeah, so versus sixty seven thousand. Significantly more likely. That's mm-hmm. that's surprising to me. Significant at least for a while. Now. So one of the big concerns, if you want to know how the, the war on trucks is going, you look at one of the other the next subgroup. I guess we looked at general stats. Um, throw some general numbers out there, but what's really useful to know is how it's affecting the youth, right? One of the things that everybody agrees on is that we don't want our youth having their lives ruined by drugs. Here are the numbers on that. So of of 12th graders is what we're going to focus on. You can, you can get smaller numbers of all of these for younger groups. But 12th graders, 58.5% of them have tried alcohol. 30% have drank in the last month and 13% have binge drank in the last month, consuming four more alcoholic beverages in a row. That's alcohol. Alcohol is governed under different laws. Obviously, there's going to be easier access. 16% of 12th graders have used marijuana in the past month. Past month, 16%. 12.4% of 12th graders have used an illicit drug other than marijuana in the past year. It's going to be less prevalent than marijuana, unsurprisingly. In the last year, 12%, 12.4% of 12th graders have used illicit drugs. of high school seniors have misused prescription medications in the past year. And again, 12th graders or high school seniors, 7.9% regularly misuse amphetamines, such as Adderall or Ritalin. And 4% of high schoolers regularly misuse pain medications. I may be a bit cynical, but but I'd say that 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 doesn't surprise me at all. One of the things that I, as I have conversations with people on this subject, often they don't seem to have an idea of these numbers. But you can go to almost any high school in the country. I would probably any high school with more than like 300 people. And you will find lots of marijuana, easy access to it, and a number of other illicit drugs. As these numbers reflect, if 16% of 12th graders had used marijuana in the past month, what percent have seen it? Now, what percent are aware that it's there? It's got to be way higher than that. What percent of them are actually exposed to it in ways or in situations mm-hmm. where they might take it? Mm-hmm. It's got to be way higher than the 16% who have actually used it in the past month. It's ubiquitous in a lot of ways, right? It's everywhere. In high school. It's definitely available. It's definitely available. That, that, yeah. that if you ask the average 12th grader if they could get access to it, they could. They you know, could. whether they'd admit that or not. Right, right. It would, it would take very little effort for them to get access to marijuana. Often relevant to discussing the drug, the war on drugs, is prison statistics. First off, there are about 2.3 million prisoners total in jail at any given time. 
Now, a lot of these are there in like half a million of these are in jail for the night kind of thing. They're, they're in jail. They're in a temporary situation. They haven't been convicted of anything. But of the 2.3 million prisoners, 500,000, about, about half a million are there on drug charges. That makes up between one in five and one in four of the prisoners are there for some drug-related crime, directly drug-related crime, not violence in connection to drugs, not property crimes in relation to drugs, but there specifically. The kind of drug charge was brought against them. Right, right. It's drug charges that happen. And then, crazy uh, high then. Yeah. Crazy high. <laughs> it is crazy high. It is crazy high, especially since a lot of those other ones can be related. They're just not explicitly drug charges. You can get drugs in prison. An annual positive test rate in uh, New York did a study on this. And they, were, they were keeping track of their prisoners to see you know, how many of them actually were able to get access to drugs in prison. Between 2.9 and 3.8% over the past 10 years tested positive for drugs in prison. And uh, finally, the last statistic we're going to throw at you to kind of set up this picture is that among drug offenders, I mentioned reconviction or uh, recidivism. These statistics are from 1983 to 1994, because this was when we could find the best statistics on this. Some of the later studies on this show re-arrests instead of reconvictions. But if you want to get reconvictions, this showed that from 1983 to 1994, The numbers went up from 35.3% reconviction rate to 47% reconviction rate, meaning 47% of people in 1994, drug offenders who got out of jail would end up going back, got out of prison, they would end up going back to prison. Definitely significant. So the thing thing we're trying to, to bring up with these numbers is that not only is this drug crisis serious... But I think it's far more serious than people realize and that it's far more ubiquitous than people realize then becomes not whether or not this is a crisis or whether or not we should do something, but rather what should we do? I don't think you'd find any person who would look at all those statistics and say, yeah, that is what I wanted. This is this is right where I want the country to be. No, no one no one thinks that this is obviously an issue. So obviously the, the question of weight now for us is what do you do? What do you do with that? Right. What do you do? How do you how do you get these numbers so, something more? Obviously, you can't get rid of these numbers. That's the first thing to recognize is that that you're going to have some percentage of the population that are doing drugs and that it's it's going to be impossible to make a perfect policy per se. You're not you you're not going to be able to build the utopia on this one. We're doing a lot right now and these numbers are still there. But we can try and find something that would work better. And that's what we want to talk about. And it's important to recognize that, that what we're comparing the possibilities to is can they do better than this? Can they do better than what we've got right now? Because if they can do better, then, they, then maybe it's worth a shot. It's, we're not, we don't want anyone to think what we suggest is a solution to, to their version of, of utopia America where there are no drugs. Because that, that utopia doesn't exist. And so we're looking for real, realistic solutions, something practical, something that will actually make a dis- difference. But you know what's really fun about this discussion, something that I'm kind of excited about, is that it, it gives us a rare opportunity. And, and Dan, you hinted at it last time when you talked about how when we talked about this, this discussion would be a little bit different than people might expect. But we're about to, to jump off the rails and we hope you, 
you come with us, it'll be interesting. And we want to do that by looking at something not recent, but that's something that's actually a hundred years old this year. And that is prohibition. And prohibition is a fantastic topic when you're comparing it to drugs because, you know, as Dan was saying, you know, what we want to do is we want to look at solutions and see how they work, right? We want to try things out, maybe not necessarily physically, but at least in theory to, to see how they play out so that we can have the best possible solutions for the problem. And the nice thing about prohibition is that they already did that. In real life, they came up with a solution to a problem. They worked on that solution. They had that solution in place for 13 years and then got rid of that. And so what that gives us is amazing data. Well, not amazing because it was 100 years ago, (laughs) but significant data that we can use to look at to draw some correlations and hopefully learn a couple things because when it comes down to it, that's really what we want this podcast to be about is is learning some things and hopefully opening a few eyes, even if they're just our own. One of the things that we're going to point out as we do this is the that some of the problems of prohibition were the effects of drug problems. It was the effects of alcohol and that they wanted to address. And some of the problems come from or and are related to the ways that you try and enforce that. So we go back to the roaring 20s, but unfortunately, that's not early enough. You need to go back to late 1900s, early 20th century, and you have a growing epidemic, as people would describe it. And that is the epidemic of alcohol. You've got saloons that are popping up that weren't there before. You have drunkenness associated with many crimes. You actually start getting DUIs where you have individuals who are driving cars, which are a recent invention, and getting into accidents because they're intoxicated, right? And so there's this whole new world, as far as people see it, of really of of vice that's growing up around this one product. And you have to understand that America was a Protestant country, right? It, it still is in some areas, and that's still that's still our heritage. But the farther back in time you go, the closer you get to that core heritage. And that core heritage does not get along well with vice. Right. And exactly. I'm not arguing for or against their views on alcohol, but rather on what they do about it. Just FYI. And I would point out just that alcohol does correlate with lots of crimes that we still deal with today. And so people were saying then a lot of the things that they say now about how, you know, there's these alcohol related crimes and how alcohol is basically this scourge on society, right? <laughs> yeah, it was with some good reason for it. Yeah, and then and there there is an argument for that. There is. You know, there's arguments against it, obviously, but the thing that's interesting is they start fighting it. And there are some powerful groups that get created by these these individuals who want to clean up the country. They want to dry America. There are some some local laws that are passed, but finally, and a large part of this was actually because of World War One, because there was push that going dry was patriotic, because all these resources that were being used on alcohol could have been used on the war. An example of a campaign was any of that barley that was used to make the alcohol couldn't be used to make bread. You know what I mean? It was yeah. it was costing us the war. Yeah, it's just throwing away resources. And, yeah, exactly. So it was actually an amendment made to the Constitution that outlawed the transportation or sale of alcohol, but it did not ban the consumption, which is a little bit different than than current drug laws, obviously. But in many ways, there are a lot of similarities. And so that happened in 1920. And then for the next 13 years, that's in place. 
and then it eventually gets repealed. And so obviously a lot has to happen in those 13 years, you know, yeah. and it's interesting to look at. So, so the first thing, first thing before we go anywhere else is there are a lot of people out there who say that prohibition did nothing, right? That right. prohibition did not stop people from consuming alcohol. Right. And, so they got rid and of it. there's yeah. some truth and some not truth to that. Definitely at first. And there, there is some information, you know, I've got a, the National Bureau of Economic Research talks about how right after prohibition, alcohol consumption fell sharply down to close to 30% of pre-prohibition, meaning that they got rid of almost three-fourths of the alcohol consumption pre-prohibition. That's really high. Yeah, really high. So, so obviously it had an effect. And then over the years, that effectiveness went away until it was closer to 60 or 70% of its pre-prohibition level. So they were getting rid of close to a third of the consumption. So consumption was, was, was definitely down. But the interesting thing is, is that consumption was very, very different, right? And this is where you get into all of the, the Hollywood movies made about this era. <laughs> you've got the bootlegging, uh -huh. you've got you've got the organized crime. And so it's really interesting because how the market works, right? Everything you've described so far, you could say that, look, okay, it hasn't worked perfectly. We're up to 70% or whatever it is. And, but that's 30% less drug consumption. Isn't that still something? It's 30% less, less alcohol. Yeah, that's alcohol in that, that That's case. a win. If your goal is to reduce alcohol... 30% maybe not isn't what you wanted, but it's still really high. It's enough to keep going if there aren't other issues that make people reconsider it, which is what you're getting into right here is that, 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 that it's not actually the effectiveness of what it did to alcohol that made people reconsider it. I appreciate you bringing that up because there was actually an article that I read about prohibition during this time as I was doing this research that made that exact case that yes, it maybe didn't get rid of it completely, but it did reduce it. Yeah. And that's significant. And I do not disagree with that. It is significant. And there but there are also other significant factors. And I want to take it all in. Let's look at it all and see where the chips lie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it would be a you know, real victory. I, People would be really thrilled if we could reduce if we could take drug consumption where it is now and reduce it 30%. That would be awesome say drugs are illegal now, if we legalize them, would it jump back up by that same percentage point or a different right. percentage point, but right. something in that range? Right. And that is definitely something to factor. So, so the significant thing that changed is that, is that people went from buying alcohol from these, these legal companies who, who have been producing alcohol for a long time and then selling them to customers for a relatively cheap price. What happened is those companies no longer produced alcohol. Instead, there were there were some smaller companies that were taking advantage of legal loopholes. For example, if you were a pharmacy, you could prescribe alcohol for certain ailments. And this may sound sound familiar to people who are uh, that is, that's well versed in medical I, I marijuana. Yeah. yeah, I didn't know they could do that. But they could. There were limits on it, and they did. And the number of pharmacies increased exponentially. In some cases, threefold. The number of pharmacies in in an area in these years because they were selling alcohol. You know, it was now it was now a business, a quasi legal business. But that was just a, a small part. the The largest part is the bootleggers, and that's where we get into the Hollywood world. But these were were very real individuals who saw a market discrepancy, right? And this is where we get into what everyone calls the black market. But the black market, there's so much stigma associated with it. <laughs> 
for good reason, for good, good reason. But the black market, when it comes down to it, is very simple. It's that people want goods that are illegal or they want goods that are illegal to transport to their area or for whatever reason, it's illegal for them to have them, right? right? Wherever they are. You know, whether that means that one area can have them, another area can't, or they're illegal everywhere. It's some form of of ban. Yeah, it's of and course, so it's a, an underground marketplace. It's exactly, a market yeah, hence the term below the, the laws. Yeah, exactly. It's it's illegal market, but in many ways, and in most ways, it operates like the legal market, with a few exceptions. You know, and the first big exception is that the cost of everything in the black market goes way up. And the reason is because there is increased risk for those who are doing it, right? Obviously, there's increased risk. Right. There's also, you know, because they can get arrested at any time, but there's also, they can't mass produce to the same scale that you could if you are a reputable, reputable business, right? Because, yeah, because if the larger your business, the easier you are to be caught. Yeah. And then on top of that, there are transportation difficulties because at every step in the process, you can get caught and go to prison. And so you have to change your business to adapt to that. The other way that this black market is different is that it attracts different people and people with different skill sets. Because <laughs> in the free market, if I am really good at making widget A and getting it to people, then I will make money off of that, right? Assuming people want it. And so, and so my primary making you money. Yeah, exactly. My primary skill is being able to make this product. But in a black market, especially in this case, where alcohol is not very expensive to make, you know, you can make homemade alcohol cheaply, but it now becomes the cost does not come from the cost of the alcohol, but rather from all these risks in getting it to the customer. And so that means that your skill set now has to change. Instead of being someone who's good at making alcohol, you're someone who's good at evading the law. You're someone who's good at bribing officials or avoiding them. You're someone who's good at, at deception and at marketing without letting other people know, right? A whole bunch of different right. skills. Yeah, you keep mentioning Hollywood and the number of... of Famous Hollywood gangsters come to immediately or what I'm imagining as you're describing this. And there's good reason for it. I mean, Al Capone, possibly the most famous gangster of all time in the I, United yeah, States, safe title. rose to power during the 1920s as a bootlegger. You know, among other things, obviously, but you can look at that Chicago crime family. In fact, I did look at it, you know, as I was looking at Prohibition and the 20s is when they came to power and it was definitely significantly influenced by their business and alcohol mm -hmm. because they had those skill sets. Uh, this period of time is famous because in some ways it's the birth of organized crime. But when you think that through, that should be striking. That should be weird. Why on earth... Is this the period of time when you get organized crime? Because surely, surely people would organize for other crimes before you'd, you'd have, and certainly there were, but not on this scale, which brings up a really important question. What is, what exactly is the incentive of these people to take all these risks and to do all this stuff? It's an excellent question. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie John Wick or its sequels, <laughs> but the first. premise of John, the premise of John Wick, besides 
the main premise, which is that Keanu Reeves shoot people, shoots people. That's the premise of the awesome. show, really. Right. And is awesome, right? It's just, but that's, but that's besides the point, because there actually is a plot. As you watch more of the movies, more of this plot develops. And the idea is, is that it's this worldwide organization of assassins who are purely mercenary. They're all in it for the money, right? Here's the thing. I mean, we were talking hotels full of assassins, like so many assassins. <laughs> I remember the hotel and I keep scene. thinking, I keep thinking, how many people want someone murdered to justify this many assassins, <laughs> right? Right. Like, it doesn't make any sense. Like, if there were this many assassins, the number of people being assassinated every year would have to be in the tens of thousands. Right. Right? And that is just not happening. Pure movie fantasy in this case. Yeah, because there's no economic justification for it. There is no dying market need for assassination. (laughs) And so there is not an organized crime family dedicated to it as fun or interesting as it is in the John Wick movies. And please, for all of those who are you listening... Do not get me wrong. I love those movies. <laughs> I, 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 I do not want to hear about, oh, but John Wick is amazing. I, I agree. But it's fictional. And I'm, you, know, you may be shocked that not all action movies get their economic theory accurately. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> point I was trying to make, and maybe I made it, maybe I didn't with this John Wick analogy, is that organized crime, because you were trying to make this point about organized crime. And I'm trying to help you. Yeah, asking organized crime. Organized crime only pops up when there are a significant monetary reason to do it, right? Because that's why people are involved in crime is because they're trying to make money, more money and faster than they are in the regular market. Mm -hmm. And I asked the question, I posed to you, obviously knowing the answer, because it's an important part of this drug equation that people sometimes get wrong. And it's that the reason that gangs center on drugs is not because they want the drugs any more than it was because they want the alcohol. Now, they probably want the alcohol, too, in terms of Al Capone and these people, just as modern gangsters may want the drugs. But that's a side issue. The reason that people are killing and fighting over the drugs is largely about the monetary value and not so much about the... Now, of course, the monetary value is tied to the fact that it provides something that they want, right? But it's, but it's the monetary value that makes organizing and fighting and killing over it worth it in the long run. Not that it's a, not that I'm recommending it by any means. That's, that is a key part of the motivation. It's the money that makes drug gangs lucrative and that makes bootlegging lucrative. And that money, and this is critically important to this whole discussion, that value is driven up by making it illegal because you increase the risks, which increases the value of it, and you decrease the suppliers, or I guess you decrease, you increase the risk, which in turn decreases the supply, making it more scarce. Natural result. Right. And so the, the, the reduced supply is going to push up the value. So right now, there are a lot of ways you can make money in the world. But you don't see gangs organized around selling hot dogs. You don't see gangs organized around selling insurance. Well, I guess you do, just not the kind of insurance we're normally talking about. (laughs) The the kind of insurance where uh, if you don't pay them, they'll ransack your place. The reason for that is that those things aren't nearly as lucrative as drugs upon which they have, in some ways, a monopoly of selling. So these bootleggers now, in this prohibition example have a monopoly on on being able to 
sell moonshine, being able to sell alcohol. And the risk is relatively small because lots of people are doing it. Cost, as Brad pointed out, is relatively low. Making it isn't that expensive, though getting caught is always a risk in crime. I was about to say, I wouldn't say that the risk was low, but rather that the rewards were so high that it justifies the risk. Right, right. When I say risks are low, I mean there's, there's so many people doing it that the odds that you're caught aren't high. But you're right, that in terms of risk, it is still way higher than any, than, a, than like a, obviously than a normal legit. Than a, a legal business, yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. The risk is way higher than anything legal. It's just not all that. The odds that they get caught is just not all that high. Which brings us to, you mentioned Al Capone. Uh, one fun detail about Al Capone is that, and some of you may know this, he was eventually brought in on charges, and those charges were tax evasion. When he was brought in on tax evasion, prohibition was still in effect, right? You know, so that of the things that he was doing, they were all still illegal, but they weren't even able to nail him on bootlegging or racketeering or anything else besides tax evasion. Right, which is just... Which is crazy in a lot of ways. But the most famous gangster was ended up getting caught on tax evasion. And that's a that, that's another way that uh that's another tie in to modern laws and how we end up catching a lot of people through whatever means we can, whatever we can whatever charges we can get to stick. One or two more things about prohibition and more specifically about the effect that these market changes had on alcohol itself. And that is that the quality went way down significantly down to the point that there were many alcoholic beverages that were being sold that were toxic in some form or another. It was estimated, because the number isn't isn't 100% for sure, that on average, about a 1,000 Americans were dying every year from drinking poisonous liquor of some form or another. Because like we talked about before, that as the market incentives shifted, as there was no longer any oversight either from a government body or even from the public itself, because these things were happening in darkness, that these people were were dying from this tainted alcohol. Yeah, that's you know, and likely drinking as much as it's, before or, or yeah. But yeah, and that's not we're not talking people who are getting alcohol poisoning, like from drinking too much alcohol. Yeah. We're talking specifically from tainted out and that is it is because like we said that the market had changed and so the alcohol itself had changed yeah where before and after you weren't having that you know what i mean you weren't having people who are dropping dead because of drinking alcohol because you didn't have those issues yeah that makes sense maybe all all the alcohol is going to be regulated or going to be tested going to go through the normal channels and those normal channels are very good at preventing people from from dying, from dying of the product. But then the other thing that happened as a result to all of these market changes is that crime actually went up during these years. The homicide rate, you know, just, just straight up murders, which is just one factor. There are so many more went from, you know, for every hundred thousand went from 6.8 in 1920 to 9.7 in 1933. So it was over a 40% increase in just those 13 years. It's very high. And it's interesting because if you look at if you look at it graphed out, you can watch as the number then declines afterward. So it wasn't just a steady decline that was occurring anyways. You know, you can see there's definitely some kind of correlation at the very least and most likely cause and effect. Yeah. But what's even more interesting about that is that when people put these alcohol laws in effect and there are so many written records of people saying that talking about this vision they had 
where when you got rid of alcohol, crime would drop down to almost nothing, where the streets would be cleaned up, you know, and it would just be a totally different world. And then you cut that to to where arrests for drunkenness and disorderly conduct increased by 41%. You know, <laughs> drunken drivers arresting increased at 81%. What? You know, burglaries and thefts increased 9%. You know, I mean, it's just crazy. It's just crazy, the disparity between between those two ideas. And, and the interesting thing is you can see on paper why they would think that. You know, if you get rid of... If you get rid of alcohol, then all these other things should go away. But it's like you said, Daniel, that yes, in a utopia where you snap your fingers and all of a sudden alcohol no longer existed, maybe those things would happen. Probably not as as much as they thought, but at least something along those lines. But there is no magic switch and there's no magic button you can push that changes everything, you know, and you can see that in totalitarian states who have such a crazy degree of control over their citizens' lives. And yet, even in those totalitarian states, you know, even if you look back at, at you know, at communist, uh, you know, Soviet Union during the height of its power, even during in those places, you still had black markets and there were still illegal goods to be had. And that is because, you know, no matter how many restrictions you place, all you're going to do is make that product more scarce and just increase the price. That's, that's But you can never get rid of it completely. Yeah, that's interesting. And sometimes by increasing, by making more scarce and increasing price, you, you bring in some of these other things. Mm-hmm. That's, mm-hmm. Uh, that's really interesting. So obviously, prohibition is different than, a, than the modern drug war in a number of ways. There goes my cat pushing something around the floor. And we can't say that everything that's true of prohibition is going to be true of other drug laws. But no, this certain, obviously not. Right, right. But what you were talking about with things like the economic motivations and the economic effects are constants. There are predictable effects of laws that we need to consider to say, is this worth the benefit of imposing the law? And that was that's one of the interesting things about prohibition, right? Is that as they decreased alcohol use significantly, which was their goal, reduced it 30%, they decided the other increases, some of those statistics you threw out there are, that's really high. <laughs> Murder going up 40% Crazy. is no joke. And and some of those other ones, uh, those other crimes, if, if the result is that you decrease total alcohol use, but you increase a lot of these other things, then you have a trade-off. And deciding what to do with these trade-offs is not an easy question. It's really hard to compare them. And that's one of the things we want to do as we talk policies on, on anything that Brad and I talk about, is to, to highlight the trade-offs. Because you can't make a good decision until you recognize it is a trade-off. And it's not all good. Like Brad said, you can't snap your fingers and make these things disappear. If you could, I mean, we would have done so a long time ago, right? We would have solved the problem. Obviously. <laughs> no, because everyone's on the same page, really, with not wanting people to do drugs and not wanting people to people's lives to be ruined and overdoses and violent crimes around them. We want all of this to go lower. And it's just not quite as easy to do that as it might seem. And so we bring up prohibition is to highlight these principles because because there are principles that that we can use to make to make better decisions you know when we were talking last time we went to a state of nature right and that was that helped us clarify where police authority comes from you know and aside from prohibition i'd I'd really love to look at that for a minute because there's a whole nother element to to this war on drugs that 
that we haven't talked about. And this one is a little bit more difficult than Prohibition, but I think it's worth it. So bear with me. All right. So let's go back and revisit me and Dan, right? You know, I'm I'm the fisherman. Dan's the berry picker. My fish are far superior to his berries, <laughs> but that's besides the point. I, I just pick them. It's not my fault. And we've set up this community. And we have Gary, our good friend Gary, who is our police officer, right? Which which means that for all intents and purposes, he's he's our government representative, right? Because we have a very limited form of government. I mean, in many ways, it's almost a pure democracy because we decide what we want and then we have Gary enforce it, right? Right. There's no set system of courts. There's no legislature. There's none of that. So we, we go through and Dan discovers some berries. And these berries have a very disconcerting effect on Dan. And because they 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 do give him some benefits, but they also have some detrimental effects. And I feel like I'm beating around the bush here. We're talking about a hallucinogenic berry, right? <laughs> I, I hope you're following here. <laughs> I know I'm trying to make an analogy. I, I want it to be subtle, but let's not make it too subtle. So he's, he's discovered the, the primitive version of drugs, right? Right. And he partakes of the drugs because he wants to. And and I noticed that it has a truly uh, nasty side effect, which is that it turns Daniel into a grump. And he <laughs> is a pain to be around. I don't like being around him anymore. And producing less berries for trade. And so now I'm annoyed because I can't get as many berries out of him as I used to be able to in trade. And so there's some, some, some negative consequences. In addition... I think that these berries, and this is the most important one, is that I think that these berries are hurting Dan, right? I right. can see that they're having significant effects on his mental state, but on his physical health as well. And and so I, as I as a good citizen, I let everyone else know, hey, these berries are hurting Dan. And I we come and we talk to you and we say, hey, Dan, we're really worried about you. And we think that you should stop, right? I appreciate your intervention. This is good. And maybe he stops and maybe he doesn't, right? These berries are and, and, probably going to keep doing it. And what we have there, what I've just described, is a, is a community that cares, right? Right. A community that cares about the people around it uh, and who are a part of it and do what they can to help that person. Yeah. Now, you hope that now people let's on take drugs it once, in whatever situation have friends like that. It's, it's really helpful. But, but now we take it to one step farther and we say... Dan, your berries, your hallucinogenic berries have created such a detrimental effect on the community because it's hurting you and you're part of the community. You know, it's not directly harming us. It's just directly harming you. But because we care about you, we've instructed Gary to throw away, you know, Gary, our police officer, all of your hallucinogenic berries and to no longer allow you to pick them. And so now at this point, we've crossed the line because before... We care about you. We want to help you. But now we're going to use force or government to stop you from doing it. Right. Right. And and on paper, it seems like both of these communities care about you. Right. Right. And on paper, fair, they both care. Indirectly, indirectly, because I'm less effective or because I'm less pleasant, I am you could say I am having a negative argue. impact or having a lesser impact on the people around me. Because I'm not being all that I can be. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And fair enough, but you're right that, that you've crossed a line when you say that you do that. And, and maybe that's a line that you're okay with, that people are okay with crossing. But it's really important to know that it's there. The line is there. And to consider 
is it worth doing it? Because because the interesting thing that happens here is that we are now punishing you for doing something that's only harming you. And so in this scenario, you are both the perpetrator and the victim. You know, as we described before, where someone steals bear, you know, steals your berries, you're the victim. The person who stole your berries is the criminal. And so Gary would then punish the criminal and return the goods to you, right? You know, right. punish the criminal, stop the criminal, help the victim. But in this case, you're the same person. And so regardless of the reasons we decided to do that, now there's this weird situation where Gary is supposed to both punish and protect you, and there's no real way that he can do that. Right. Because yeah. anything he does, anything he does to hurt you, is obviously going to hurt you. Anything he does to stop you is going to take away your your freedom. And here you are the victim. And he is now hurting your freedoms, your rights that you're doing to yourself. Do you see how it becomes this weird circle? Yes. Yeah, it does. It doesn't it, if you if you're thinking it it in the terms that we we discussed last time, as you said, in this, this state of nature where we're like initially there isn't a police officer, but but eventually it becomes practical to hire one because he it's no longer useful for me to spend so many so much time and resources personally protecting myself and it becomes more effective to have someone else doing that but if that person then comes and starts trying to tell me how to run my life when i'm not doing anything to anyone else he's doing more he's no so, longer protecting you right he's no longer doing he's no longer acting as my agent he's not just protecting me which was what initially everyone had agreed he should be doing that was why we would why would be we'd be willing to pay for him in the first place. And at this point, I'm certainly not going to want to be paying him. <laughs> like, like, you're gonna take my stuff and you're gonna make me do things? Why am I paying you? <laughs> well, exactly. And and obviously, just like with prohibition, there are so many differences between between your hallucinogenic berries in this small society and what's occurring today. But the principles remain the same. And the principle is the one of when is it right or when is it just to use force? And like you said, as we brought up last time, is there are only limited number of cases when it's legitimate. And, you know, a great example of that would be you talked about, you know, drug-related crimes that aren't actually about drugs. You know, for example, if someone robs a convenience store to get cash to go pay for his drugs. That's a clear case where even though, you know, it's clearly drug related, but it's also someone is clearly violating the rights, the property and the, the, the life potentially of someone else. Right. 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 People. And yeah, people don't think, think of theft as serious as they should. That person may be out on the street if they don't, if their shop doesn't have the goods anymore. They might lose everything. That could be, mm -hmm. you are yeah, really exactly. hurting someone by robbing their shop. You could potentially be killing them in some ways, indirectly. And on that same token, you know, you have, for example, the drug cartels that do many unjust and totally immoral things in their pursuit of selling these drugs. And there is no way that I would want to legitimize those cartels in any way, even right. just in talking about it, because what they're doing is 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 wrong. Absolutely. And and there's no reason to confuse question of looking at the morality of force and taking it to the other extreme and saying, oh, we're saying you should get rid of everything. And that's not what we're saying. <laughs> we're saying you need to take a minute and, and, and look at it and really think because it's something that 
that on its surface is so simple, but can really be transformative. If you if you're at this point in this podcast and you're thinking, oh, I know where you guys are going with this, you you may and are very likely wrong because everything we've done up to this point is just try to ask questions, try and raise questions, try and point at things that, that maybe you weren't aware of that, that are inconsistent with with the whatever position you happen to hold and what you happen to believe about the war on drugs, and to point out some of the motivations around it. And this is one of those incentives that it's important to understand if you want to get the full picture. And it's that in a black market, you don't have recourse for deals gone bad. If you if you make a contract, normally, if you make a contract, business contract of some kind, you're held to that contract. And if, you, and if the contract, if you fail on your side of the contract, there are natural uh, ways that we can go about solving that problem um, from... From renegotiating it to to things like uh, declaring bankruptcy and, and saying we just we just can't pay you. That option is not there in a black market. In a black market, when deals go bad, everyone should probably everyone probably has an idea of how of where this is going, because because drug deals gone bad is synonymous with people dying. We just know that if you say oh, it was a drug deal gone bad, you know somebody died, and that's that is. Not a product of the effects of the drugs. That's a product of the value of the good in a black market. That's a no, and violence that needs to be taken into account when we're considering these policies. That is the fact that many of these drugs or some version that is very similar or just a different version of that same drug are sold and exchanged illegally between medical companies. You know what I mean? That's, you know... That's right. a normal thing. Oh, that's a good point. A good and point. and no one has trading. heard <laughs> yeah, about a shootout between medical companies <laughs> on a deal gone bad. Right. It just – the whole idea is laughable. You, you don't get – It is. Because we're trading amounts of morphine in a market, which hospitals do. All of a sudden, we go nuts. No, it has nothing to do with the drugs. It's all about the illegality. Right. It's the illegality that creates – Because the same is the same is true – for other exchanges of high value in an illegal market, you know, another example would be illegal firearms, you know, and there's a deal, a, a trade and it goes bad and, and bad things happen. And it's because of, it is because of that black market and because of the high stakes. Right. Drugs are the most common example because the stakes are number one, so very high and so very common, you know, the, yeah. the sheer dollars, the total dollars that are being spent in the United States in this black market makes talking about, you know, the black market for firearms seem absolutely insane. Even though there is one, there are so many right. firearms that are, that are currently illegal that are, are traded and sold, but in a black market, but the money value is so much smaller compared to drugs that it never has quite that same scale of impact. Right. Another fun one that movies do is like art, art thefts, right? Those, cause you can do a lot yeah, of fun. Yeah. It's not a great right. example. Right. And in an art, you could steal an art piece that'd be worth an absolute fortune, right? Much, just crazy amounts of money, but it's just so infrequent. And diamonds are another one that occasionally shows up where, where obviously if someone has a bunch of, of illegal diamonds they've smuggled into a country or, or whatever the scenario is, that, it's it's very possible that if the deal goes bad, somebody's going to die. Somebody's going. There's going. Yeah, it's something that you could easily see is that it's worth killing over, right. and there is no 
there are no legal recourses for them to remedy it, to fix it. With drugs, it's just a little less clear because people tend to think that it's a product of the fact that they're on the drugs, but it's, it's, in a lot of cases, it's not. In most cases, it's not. It is this similar thing. It's that it, it's the effect of a, a, of deals gone bad in the black market over lots of valuable goods. And that, uh, that increases the violence around it. If you want, depending on the legality of the drugs, there will be an increase in violence when they're exchanged. That's just baked into the, the equation when you're, when you're weighing what, what should be done and what shouldn't be done. Mm-hmm. Another one and tied into that is, which we've, we've, I feel like we've covered really well. It's just the idea that, that by making it illegal, you increase the scarcity, which is what increases the value. You, there's still a significant demand for it, unfortunately. Ideally, we could turn off the demand for bad things, for things that aren't good for people. <laughs> and that's just not even so far beyond possible that it's a be living in a dream world if we thought we could do that. Um, you can't do that. There's going to be a demand, and by decreasing the supply, you increase the value significantly, which makes it then worthwhile to organize and to put together a complicated structure that runs these risks in order to try and make a profit. An important part of doing that in the black market is being capable of violence and those things that we, homemade goods, a black market, a lot of it's homemade. You were telling me something earlier about hospitals that I thought was funny. I was about to interrupt you and bring it up because it's, it's such a vivid example in my mind and hopefully I can convey it. You know, people talk about, about heroin and, and fentanyl because fentanyl is kind of a new thing that people are misusing. And it's interesting because because heroin is considered very deadly, right? Yeah. I mean, I literally watched a show yesterday or the day before where someone OD'd on heroin, right, and died. So it's 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 the classic OD for for Hollywood, yeah, because it is Makes it is very dangerous and it's very easy to OD on versus something like marijuana, where you know the, it's almost impossible. You know, it's totally different, at least. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyways, but the amount of fentanyl you need to overdose versus the amount of heroin is is crazy because the proportions are so different. You need way more heroin to overdose than you need a fentanyl. You know, the amount, the microscopic amount of fentanyl you need to die is very small, the lethal dose. So I, I, I bring that up because because my wife had a baby, what is it now? A little over eight and a half months ago. And we go and, and we go to have the baby and, and she's hurting. And so she has to get the epidural. And the anesthesiologist took me a minute to remember the name. The anesthesiologist. <laughs> say that every day. I don't. Hopefully. Not, not for a few a months people. now. but but he was he was helping with a c-section and so he couldn't come and and perform the procedure to give her the epidural so the doctor came over and and they gave her a dose of fentanyl it was super quick it was super easy and the effects were almost immediate made our whole process go much more smoothly so that when she actually got the epidural she was calm she was still it truly was a lifesaver in this situation but the important thing is is that they gave her a dose of fentanyl. It was no issue. They were not worried at all about her overdosing. You know what I mean? Right. There were, no there were like, no concerns we like that. This, we want you to know that there's a 20% chance you die. You're going to die right now. You know what I mean? We'll Nothing like that. Would take it, yeah. because, because this hospital, like every other hospital, gives patients fentanyl on a regular basis. It's, it's a very common drug to give pregnant women for whatever reason who can't get an epidural because it's so effective. And because it's so strong, right? Right. And yet, 
there aren't, you know, as I'm reading the pregnancy book, it wasn't saying, hey, fentanyl has a the super high risk of killing you, even though it does if it's misused. But because this environment is full of professionals whose expertise is not in avoiding the law, but is instead in the product itself and knowing how it works, how to administer it. And so there's there's no issues, right? There's there's I mean, there are issues, obviously. Right. I understand mistakes, that. But they're, but they're so infrequent compared to people. But they're, it's so different yeah. versus the 67,000 people who overdose because people assume that because the drugs are there, people will overdose. And it's true. People will overdose always if the drugs are there. But the majority of those cases where people overdosed, it wasn't because they chose to. They, they were committing suicide with the drugs. And it wasn't because they didn't care anymore and so they weren't paying attention. The majority of those times, it's because the labeling, the consistency of the product, and all of these other factors, and the fact that there's so little information for these people who are consuming those drugs, that the chance of a mistake happening increases exponentially. And so you have to factor that in, is that when we're talking about that homemade brew, just like those thousand people a year who are dying from alcohol, these people, these overdoses are preventable, not just by eliminating drugs altogether, which as we talked about earlier, is literally impossible, but actually by changing the way that people are getting the drugs. And even now, as drugs are illegal, it's very common, you know, that, that doctors and people who are trying to help those who are addicts, they will go out and they will give people clean needles and things like that so that when they do drugs... They won't kill themselves. And those doctors aren't doing that because they love drugs. They're like, oh, yeah, heroin, man. They're not secretly no, promoting. They're just trying to protect life. No, yeah. It's, as we were reading stories about people who have overdosed and different things have happened to them as we were preparing for this, one of the things that struck me was how many people die who they die of overdose and they die of overdose at a time when they were actually trying to get better. Had they not died of that overdose, they probably would have gotten to a point where they had kicked the addiction to the degree that that's possible in their case and would have been okay. It just takes a single moment. And there were other cases where, you know, it's people who don't really use drugs at all. And then they take a strange combination that affects them in a particular way. And because of, of the illegality of it, because they don't know what's in it, because of a variety, you know, because of the circumstances created there, they end up dying when it would have been fairly easy to save them if the circumstances had been slightly different. And that's a, that's, mm -hmm. that's a tragedy. It's definitely something that makes you think. Yeah, it is. You, you need to, con makes you want to consider, well, you know, is there another way to approach that? And are there a different set of circumstances that drug users could be in that would be, that would be better? The answer is obviously yes. The question is, is the trade-off worth it? Is offering those circumstances the right trade-off? And that's, that's what we're considering. Um, another interesting point to consider is that, that police have limited time and resources. What was the name of the police officer in your state of nature example? Gary. 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 Taking my berries. If Gary's spending all his time trying to check and see if the people in the community are on these berries, that's time he's not spending on other things. And this is just a another economic principle per se, that we live in a world of scarce goods, limited resources. De determining how to deploy those limited resources to be effective is an important question. It's a part of everyday life. It's something you automatically consider with pretty much everything you do. And it's something we have to take into account here is that I think 
I think everybody would say that the most important thing that police officers can do is address violent crimes. Yes, it's to it's to physically protect people. It's to physically protect people from being killed. <laughs> like that's a and that's an important, extremely important job. One I would love for the police to be doing all the time. To put resources into other things means less resources in that area. And that's just something to consider. Obviously, you can increase the funding of the police and you can increase the resources. And those have diminishing returns and different things that we can talk about. But but in any given state of the resources of the police, you can d- deploy those resources in infinite variety of ways. And doing what, focusing on what's important is, is a critical part of it. If Gary's looking for those things, that's time he's spending not doing other things. Opportunity cost, as it's commonly referred to. And that's the the other question, the other thing that gets raised. And that's something we talked about with the, the no-knock raids last time is that, you know, in this example with Gary and you, where Gary is is trying to police you in your use of these illegal berries, and he doesn't know how to do it, right? right. And in... How does he prove In the United if States... I know that Gary's looking for me, I'm going to eat those berries when Gary's not around. No, exactly. But but the point is, is that Gary has to treat you like a criminal, right? Because he can't... If he only thinks of you as a victim, he's not going to do anything, right? And so then he won't uphold the law. So he has to think of you as a criminal, right? And the police do the same thing, Right. And so they think of you as a criminal. And so what that means is how they're going to treat you and what they're going to do to you is very different. As you can see with these no-knock raids, which like you said before, one of their primary purposes is to find these illicit drugs. And so what that means is that you're going to put in jeopardy the lives of everyone who's in that home in order to even find out if the drugs are there. Yeah, and that's a fundamental you know I mean? so we're not- law. Yeah, that it that it does that, and this it, that law inherently accepts the idea that you are willing to enforce by violence the thing that is that is in question. But you, but yes, this in this is even worse in the sense that you have to catch them by surprise, and there's there's other circumstances that we discussed, as you mentioned, discussed in the first podcast um, that make these circumstances even more dangerous and put these people's lives at stake for the sake of well stuff. and how many of these altercations with the police that went wrong were drug related you know it would be interesting right. to pile up that information that because be so many of them so many of them are you know the the highway patrol when they're when they're patrolling on the freeway they pull people over for speeding or for for running a red light or for whatever it is, you know, in, in various department departments, state to state, but they pull them over and sometimes they want to give them a warning. Sometimes they give them a ticket, but at the same time, they're always looking for something else. And that thing that they're looking for is not, Hey, is this person going to murder someone? Or, Hey, is this person, you know, on their yeah. way back from, from stealing someone's goods? No, their thought is, does this person have drugs on them? You know what I mean? Yes. That is their is always their thought. You know, they're always going back to that. And so that can fundamentally change the way the police view every citizen because every citizen is now a suspect for having drugs because just the very fact that you have drugs is illegal and that makes you a criminal. Yeah, it, it, and it is fundamentally different. Like it, if you look at what it's like for a police officer to pull you over for a truck traffic stop. It's very difficult to imagine that getting out of hand. Like maybe the person's really angry or they're 
whatever, you know, things can go, things can go bad in any situation. If it's just about the traffic violation, then it's extremely unlikely yeah, exactly. that it's going to turn violent. But if they have, like you said, if the cop is also saying this is a traffic violation, but while I'm at it, I need to see if this guy is using drugs and has drugs in the car. Then if that person happens to have drugs in the car, at that point, we're back into this black market mentality and problem where, where the only solution to this problem for the person in the car is violence. Whereas a drug violation is just not worth it. But I mean, not a drug violation, excuse me, a traffic violation. It's just not worth it. But a drug violation escalates things significantly. People talk about uh, the phrase, there's the phrase often referred to in this discussion as drugs are a uh, victimless crime. Right. And then people counter and they go, no, it's a, there are victims. There's the person who's taking the drugs. There's the person, there's their friends and their family and the people that they steal from to fund the addiction and etc. The initial point of victimless crime had nothing to do with whether or not somebody suffers. The point was it's a victimless crime in that policing runs on victims. If you're robbed, you call the police, the police come into your house they look around, they look for evidence, they look for clues. They're working for you, right? You've been harmed. They're trying to solve that. They have a lead. They have a lead. Someone robbed your house. They have, a, you know, they have time. They have something to work with. What do they have with the guy who's doing drugs and harming no one? What do they have? How do they police that? How do who's going to call guy? them? Who's going to call them? Where did they start with a lead? Where, what time, what place, what, what do they have? They rely on people informing, but those aren't victims and they don't have, they often don't have concrete things. They have just suspicions and it's just, it becomes a fundamentally different thing. If someone's murdered, if someone's stolen from them or robbed, if someone's uh, assaulted, if someone's, if there's a fraud of some kind, all of the normal crimes that we think of have clear victims that provide clear starting points for law enforcement. Drug laws do not have that. And if you want to catch the person who is both the criminal and the victim, if you want to catch the guy who's just harming himself, you have to completely rethink your approach to policing. You have to think it, rethink it from the ground up and say, we can't wait around for calls because then we're just policing other crimes. If we wait for the drug addict to hurt someone, then we're just, you know, it, it falls into the other category. If you want to catch them just for the drugs, you have to find ways to get into their house. No knock rates. You have to find ways to catch them while they're using it. You have to completely change the way that you police. And it, it's, it's a very different culture. Like you said, it creates a, it creates an environment where every interaction with the police, they're looking to see if you are one of these drug users. Mm -hmm. And because mm -hmm. they have no other way to find it. I mean, how else are they supposed to operate? This isn't, I'm not like trying to point fingers or say police are bad or anything. This is just, this is just the only way if you're going to take illegality to things that someone is doing in the privacy of their home. You've got to invade that privacy to get to, to catching them. And that's what, that's what no knock raids do in a huge way. Nothing invades your privacy. And, and the like other that. thing Group that it, the police coming in with the kicking in your door, <laughs> which, which we want them to do if there's a real crime mistake, right? We want that. Yeah. As we covered last time. Yeah. It's interesting because another way it changes the, the, the whole situation is, you know, we talked about incentives before, but the incentives for the cops, you know, because the cops are trying to prevent crimes and a lot of crimes are very difficult to prevent or even to 
to catch the bad guy after it happened, right? You know, the number of murderers who get away, that's frustrating and that's and that's and that sucks, really. With with drug crimes, it's a little bit different. You know, as we talked about, the number of of drug users in the United States is crazy high. We're talking millions and millions versus the number of people who who have committed murder or some other violent crime. Nineteen percent of the population in the last year. Yeah, exactly. And so for a police officer, you know, you your job is to stop crime. And so if the most common crime, the number one crime that is occurring all around you, where if you're walking down the street, you know, one out of every 12 people or whatever is carrying drugs on them in that moment, how do you not see that as as your number one priority? You know what I mean? Because it's something you can actually do and you can do it right now. Right. How could it not become, in a lot of ways, the focus of police? Exactly. Exactly. And so the police then shift their focus to drugs because because you're going to get a lot more convictions, and they do. And you can see that with all these convictions and all these, you know, the the 500,000 people who are in prison convicted of these these drug charges. Yeah. And the other 500,000 that are in jail, but haven't yet been convicted at any given time, which is a really high amount of people. But yeah. Wait to that half a million. Yeah. But, but it, it just, it makes sense. It makes sense for them to do that because why would they do anything else? Because once again, that's how the incentives are set up. Right. Right. And, And so they, to do that, the no-knock raids is one we mentioned. Other ways, they, they, they go undercover, right? They get in on these these uh, gangs, and they, they try and send people in to try and get the evidence that's obviously so hard to get, as the Al Capone example. <laughs> obviously, police have become more sophisticated in some of their things, but it's, it's, it's difficult. What we've asked them to do is much more difficult than the other crimes. The other crimes have – there's clear paths that police officers can take to get to there. Um, they have to get creative with the drug laws and, and they have to do things that start to make, to make other lines blurry um, because they assume mm-hmm. because, because there's just no other way to catch people. They have to be the ones who initiate it. They have to be the ones who discover it most of the time. And they, uh, you know, it's massive amounts of surveillance to see if someone's dealing drugs out of their house. It's massive amounts of you know, time invested in these, these, these undercover operations and these sting, uh, the stings. Um, the stings, which raise another question that we just don't have time to discuss here, really. But the idea of would the person have done it if they weren't set up for it, <laughs> which is always a, an interesting mm-hmm. question of, of would they have bought the drugs if the police officers weren't offering to sell them? <laughs> and uh, anyway, it, it becomes it becomes much more gray. Maybe some some people are comfortable with that, very comfortable with that. But it, uh, it at least should raise some questions. And that's just one one point. And we don't want to hit that one point too hard even though it ties in so well with our last podcast, which is why it's, it's, it's so easy to fall into that because, because it is just one of, of, of many ideas that we're trying to raise. One of the many questions, questions that we're trying to pose because, you know, as we get closer to the end of this podcast, clearly, clearly we have an agenda, but that agenda is not necessarily that we want to, to flip everything around, we're not proposing our own utopia, as as Dan put it earlier. You know, we're not proposing anything at all like that. We're not trying to propose extreme policies or anything like that. Our goal here 
is simply to pose the questions, especially with this episode, because there are so many questions that simply aren't being asked. And that, I think, is the real travesty. Yeah, when people weigh it, they're not, and a lot of times they're not weighing it fairly because they haven't asked the right questions. And so they don't know, they often conflate the problems that are, that the drug war is trying to address with problems created by the illegality and the effects of the black market and the economic incentives of it. And when you, when you conflate those things, when you can't distinguish what's caused by what there, you assume it's all caused by just the negative effects of drugs. Then you have, you form a very mistaken idea about how to address that problem because you've really misdiagnosed the problem. And that's why we pointed to prohibition because prohibition, even though they were succeeding at reducing the amount of alcohol consumed, the cost was too high in other ways. And that's, it raises a lot of really good questions that should be considered as you're weighing the policies of the drug war. Hopefully helping you rethink, Amen. as our name implies, <laughs> help you rethink and at least, at least think your, even if you keep your opinion, uh, hopefully you understand it better and you understand better. You're more, more able to recognize the, the trade-offs that you're, that you're accepting because policies are messy. Real policies about complicated issues like this are really messy. You're going to get some good and some bad, however you change the laws. And maybe at some point in the future, and well, probably at some point in the future, we'll take a look at some more specifics of those laws. Obviously not next podcast because we want to move on to something else. But but there are specific specific laws and specific, you know, drugs specifically and and, and movements and things that we'd love to look at and break those down. But that's really not our goal here. Our goal is to to get a kind of a broader scope and a broader picture of it. Yeah, I will say one one worthwhile policy thing to consider is that, that given the complexity of an issue like this, it's useful to have multiple approaches working at once. And that's one of the benefits, I think, of, of a state system that is uh, usually lost today, is that you can get that and you can compare a little better. Um, there are a lot of different countries in the world that are trying different approaches to drugs, but a lot of them are so early in their process and the data is so hard to get because often they change the laws and implementation is behind by several years or, you know, police are, uh, haven't yet adapted to the new laws and the way, the way the system works. There's, there's a variety of reasons as, as we were preparing for this, I was looking at a number of countries that have significantly different drug laws than ours. Um, but finding good data on it turned out to be rather difficult because of, of just the, how many different levels are, it's gotta be imp- the laws have to be changed. You need to find laws that are comparable. Uh, the, uh, the laws need to actually be implemented by the police and, and new practices found to apply the new laws. And then you need to have a justice system that actually recognizes them. One of the things you may or may not be familiar with is that as people have changed the legality of marijuana in different states, often the judge, the judicial system changes slower. So you're getting, you're getting people arrested and prosecuted for crimes that on the books now are no longer crimes. And so there's a, there's a bit of a delay. Changing the laws has, it's not clean. It's not as, it's not a clean system as, as we would like to think it is. But anyway, the point of that was that the, by looking at these different countries and by looking at some of this other information, we can get, we can get more clear ideas. And as Brad suggested, we'll revisit this in the future, uh, especially if this becomes a big topic where it looks like it may change and talk about specific solutions. Because we do enjoy talking about specifics, <laughs> especially if those specifics are John Wick. Yes, anytime we can we can visit uh, Al Capone and gangster movies and John Wick, we're we're in. 
Anything else you want to say before we wrap this up, Brad? Any any final points? I think I just want to say thank you for listening, you know, because because I know it's hard to listen to and it's hard to devote the time to because it is so polarizing and so frustrating. But but I really think that that we can make something good out of this, you know, and, and that, that there are so many so many viable solutions out there, you know, and one of those solutions that we haven't talked about, you know, and, and I want to bring it up real quick. It's just a final thought is that is that Dan talked about about there's a demand, right? There's a demand for drugs and it's really hard to change that demand. And as far as the government, the government has very limited options for changing that demand. But there are a lot of non-government resources out there that can make a difference and one of those is is addiction recovery programs. And I'm not necessarily talking rehab, not necessarily not talking rehab. I know the addiction recovery programs and a lot of the 12-step groups out there and the the significant impact they have, not just on a, a national scale, but on an individual scale. And there are so many people out there who really care and who are willing to help those who are caught up in this. And that's something that regardless of policy is going on and that we can support. And I and I'd appreciate it if people did because it does make a difference. It does make a difference. That's a good point. There, uh, one of the other ideas that that you remind me of as you, you mentioned that is that that a lot of the current drug laws, as they are, whatever you you think of the war on drugs in general, some of the practices in place are based on psychological ideas about addiction that come from forty years ago, and many of which we have better information on now than we did then. And so, even just updating the laws to reflect some of the uh, what we understand about addiction today um, would be a really useful endeavor and something to another factor to consider in this is, is how does addiction work from a psychological perspective that may lend some insight into into the best approach politically but certainly everyone can you can do a great deal for drug addiction government aside and you're right to point out the fact that fact because so many times people sit around and they think you know, it's a government solution or it's no solution. You know, either, either we all do something together through government or nothing happens. And that's just not the case. In, in creative ways, intelligent people working on this problem, people trying to do things to improve this can do a great deal of good. I guess thank you for listening. Until next time.